Poppy seeds? My friend said. What do you need poppy seeds for? Her gray eyes peered out at the classroom like a hawk looking for some little animal to catch. Coyote decided to ignore it. But again he heard, <clears throat> Coyote. We love stories! It's time for the apple seed, filled with stories for you and your family. All kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers. I'm Sam Payne, your host. Such a pleasure for me to be with you and to have you with me every time that you tune in to bring these stories into your home and into your heart. It's going to be a great hour, and we're going to begin with a story from Bill Harley. This is Mrs. Ammons and the Boys' Room. It's a favorite about uh, elementary school hijinks. It's going to take you right back to your own days in elementary school, and you're going to love it. Here's Mrs. Ammons and the Boys' Room here on the Appleseed. If you're a kid, you might think that your teacher doesn't know what to do when you're not there. You might think that teachers don't have anything to do all summer but wait for you to come back. Some kids think that teachers camp out in their classrooms all summer, waiting for Labor Day and the arrival of students when they can start living again. And that makes sense when you think about it. When school gets out in June, the teacher stands at the door, says goodbye, the kids run out the door, and they go home all summer. They come back at the end of the summer, and there the teacher is standing right where they left her. Hi, she says, come on in, I've been waiting for you. I thought that too, until the end of fourth grade. I found out at the end of fourth grade that teachers have a life without us. And I found out because Mrs. Marshall's dumb baby came early. Mrs. Marshall was my fourth grade teacher, and I really liked her. Mrs. Marshall was pregnant. She was supposed to say goodbye to us at the end of the school year, have the weekend off, deliver the baby on Monday, and be back in school the first week of September. But the dumb baby came early, and all of us in her fourth grade class arrived in school on Monday of the last week, a week that ended on Thursday at 11 o'clock, and we discovered that she was missing. Her baby had come. It was bad enough that Mrs. Marshall wasn't there, because we all liked her. But what was even worse was who was there in her place. In Mrs. Marshall's place was Mrs. Ammons, the long-term substitute teacher of Washington Township. Mrs. Ammons was the SWAT team, the rapid deployment force, the crisis management contingent of the school system brought in when a class of kids had succeeded in reducing a teacher to tears and had driven her to early retirement. She only came in for long periods, and she only came in when they really needed her because everybody was afraid of her. There is no way to describe her but gaunt, humorless, and severe. She dressed in a simple gray skirt and white blouse. Her gray hair was yanked tight against her head. Her gray eyes peered out at the classroom like a hawk looking for some little animal to catch. Once, when I was in another class, we were all up running around the room. We were working on a project. Maybe we were making a little too much noise. I don't know. Maybe we were learning. But the teacher was in the room. Everything was okay. Mrs. Ammons was walking down the hallway. She heard all the noise. She opened up the door, stuck her head in the classroom, and said, Is there a problem here? We all scrambled to our seats, even the teacher. So, you can imagine how upset I was 
when I walked into my fourth grade classroom and saw her. What are you doing here? I asked. Mrs. Marshall had her baby, she said. I'm your teacher for the rest of the week. Sit down and do your morning work. It's on the board. Now, it was miserable to have Miss Zammons at any time of year, but having her the last week of school was the worst thing that could possibly happen. The last week of school was the only one worth going to as far as I was concerned because the teachers had given up. It was hot. Standardized tests were finished. We could smell summer. So there was only one thing to do. Have fun. We had extra recesses. We played hangman on the board in the middle of English. We had parties. We had class outside where you'd pull grass and throw it at your friends. But not with Mrs. Ammons. She called us in early from the first recess. Someone asked if we could have class outside. She said, no, because you wouldn't learn anything. You'd just throw grass at your neighbor. Exactly, I thought. That was the whole point. When can we have fun, we'd ask. Why can't we play games like everybody else? She would say, school ends on Thursday at 11 o'clock. After that, you can do whatever you want. Well, I got off on the wrong foot right away. I didn't mean to. I, I was misunderstood. The first time we lined up for lunch, she walked to the front of the line turned the light of the classroom off, said, Oh, that wasn't nearly good enough. Back to your seats, we'll have to try it again. We walked back to our seats and tried it again. She didn't like that either. Too noisy, too fast, not in order. Again and again and again. Our lining up was eating into the lunch hour. Finally, about the seventh or eighth time we were headed back to our desks, I said, under my breath, just loud enough for her to hear, Geez, I'm glad we're learning to do this. She misunderstood me. I meant to show her I understood how exasperated she was. We were idiots that we couldn't line up right. I looked at her. She folded her arms, turned her head towards me, lowered her gaze, and gave me a long, cold stare. After that, it didn't seem like I could say or do anything right. I was doomed. It was a miserable way to spend the last week of school. And there was only one place that you could escape. And that was only if you were a boy. Three times a day, at 10.30, right before lunch, and at 1.30 in the afternoon, we had restroom break. We would file out the door of the classroom, down the hall, and the boys and girls would split up and go into the restrooms. And then the fun began, if you were a boy. We lined up at the four sinks and turned on the faucets. We soaked paper towels and threw them up on the ceiling. We flushed the urinals. Perry Lesh could do this amazing thing. He could take in one big squig of water, and for the rest of the three minutes we were in the bathroom, he would squirt little sprays out one after another. And we would count. 84, 85, 86. And he would never run out. Shortly after we went in, we would hear three sharp raps on the door. And from the other side, we would hear Mrs. Ammon's voice. Time, boys. Time. Hurry up. Time. Time. But we were safe. Finally, we'd walk out of the restroom with smiles on our faces. She would say, no snickering. She wanted to know what went on, but she couldn't find out because she wasn't a boy. That week, on the Monday afternoon excursion to the restroom, I made a discovery, which launched me into the pantheon of the most famous fourth graders that ever attended Delaware Trail Elementary School. In the bathroom, washing my hands, I looked back at the stalls and had a sudden inspiration. 
I walked into one of the nearest stalls, closed the door, stood on top of the seat, put my hands on top of the stall wall for balance, and poked my head over the top. Look, you guys, look, I said. I reached out with one leg, holding onto the top of the stall, and with that free foot, pushed down on the plunger. The toilet roared and swirled. I looked at my friends, rolled my eyes, and said, and slowly sank down to my knees, my head disappearing behind the stall wall. There was a moment of silence, and then this huge, spontaneous outbreak of applause and cheering. It looked exactly like I had been swallowed by the toilet. I didn't know exactly what it looked like, but it must have been magnificent, because immediately every boy in the restroom lined up for the stall and saying, Oh, watch me. No, no, watch this one. No, no, I can do it. I can do it. I can do it. And one by one, whoosh, whoosh, they all got sucked up by the toilet. Finally, Mrs. Ammon's knocking was so persistent we had to leave with huge grins. No snickering, she said. We could hardly wait for restroom break. We asked for extra ones. The girls in our class couldn't understand it, and probably more than one began to really wonder if there was something seriously, seriously wrong with boys. I am proud to say that of all the boys in that class, I was the best, the absolute best, at getting sucked up by the toilet. You can put it on my grave. It was the only bright spot in a horrible week. Other kids in other classes got extra recesses. Mrs. Ammons discovered some old, old reading books in some long, forgotten closet in the school, handed them out, and had us read these stupid stories and answer the stupid questions. One of them was Jimmy's Birthday Surprise, about a kid who was excited because he got dress shoes for his birthday. Who could get excited about that? We had to answer the question in full sentences. The question asked, What was Jimmy's Birthday Surprise? And if you wrote, dumb dress shoes. Mrs. Ammons made you do the whole thing over and write, Jimmy's birthday surprise was new dress shoes. Why can't we have any fun, we'd ask. She'd answer, school ends at 11 o'clock on Thursday. Then you can have fun. Everybody else had parties. We begged and pleaded. Mrs. Ammons finally said, all right, we'll play a game. Oh, Grace, and we're going to do, what, what, what kind of game are we going to play? Math relay races, she said. Oh, math relay races. In math relay races, she would write a bunch of problems up on the board. The first person in each row would go up to the board and do the first problem, finish it, go back, touch the person behind them in their row, and that person would go up and do the next problem. The only fun part was trying to trip the kids in the other rows as they ran back to their seats. After the second time somebody tripped, Mrs. Ammon said, All right, no tripping. Everyone must walk to the board and back. What's the point, I asked. She glared at me again and shook her head back and forth as if she were reaching the end of her rope. All week long, we wandered through the purgatory of Mrs. Ammon's teaching until finally we got to Thursday, less than half a day to freedom. Mrs. Ammon's gave us spelling words. She had us write a paper about what we liked about the year. And then somewhere around 10 o'clock, or a little later, all the boys looked at each other. We realized we were still going to get one more bathroom break. At 10.30, Mrs. Ammons made no sign there would be a bathroom break. Finally, at 10.40, one of the boys raised his hand. Mrs. Ammons, do we have a restroom break? No, she said. School ends in half an hour. But, but what if you have to go, somebody asked. Oh, surely, she said. You don't have to go. You can wait. No, 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 all the boys said. We got to go. We got to go. I don't know why she gave in, but she did. 
All right, she said. This is silly. Everybody line up. We lined up. We were good at it. We'd had a week of practice. Down the hallways to the restroom, Mrs. Ammons muttering to herself, the girls wondering what was wrong with us. Mrs. Ammons stood at the door of the restroom and watched us file in. Inside the boys' restroom, the party began. The faucets went on, thumbs stuck underneath them, the urinals flushed, paper towels pulled out and soaked, turned into weapons. It was a water park! And of course, one by one, we lined up, went into the stall, and got sucked in by the toilet. Watch this! Watch this! It was an Olympic rating system. 6.2, 6.4, 6.5. Artistic merit, 6.8. We were wild with abandon. School was almost over. Mrs. Ammons rapped on the door. Time, boys, time. You guys, I said, you guys, you guys. One more, just watch, just watch. I ran into the stall, climbed on the seat. I hung over the edge of the stall. You guys, watch. I reached out for the plunger with my foot. Now... There had been a lot of activity on that seat in the last three minutes. Every time it had flushed a little water, it spurted up a little bit onto the seat, and it was wet. I guess it was a little slippery, too. As I pushed down on the plunger, I felt my foot beginning to slip off the seat, headed towards, well, the sewer system. I pulled my other foot off the plunger and tried to find the seat with it, but that foot slipped, and both feet were gone, and in I went. I screamed, Ah! On the other side of the wall is a toilet squirrel. The bathroom had gone quiet. I assumed this was because it was so realistic. After all, I really was being sucked up by the toilet. Though both feet were in the toilet, I realized I was going to be okay. I wouldn't fit down in there. I was trying to get out, leaning against the stall for balance and saying, I'm okay, guys, I'm okay. The door to the stall opened. I turned and said, I'm okay. And there she was. Mrs. Ammons in the boys' bathroom. How did she get in there? Was that legal? Could she do that? Wasn't there some rule? She folded her arms, shook her head slowly, and hissed. What do you think you're doing? What could I say? I said. I'm stuck in the toilet. Well, she got me unstuck fast. We left a trail of water down the hallway for the custodian to clean up sometime that summer. The whole way down the hall, she didn't finish a sentence. Of all the things I have never... that just, You think if I'm... I, all my years of... Te- this is... If in my day, this is the last... My arm was locked in her grip. She dragged me down the hall to the office. We stood at the office counter. She was muttering and spluttering. Where is Mr. Oliver? She was asking for the vice principal in charge of discipline. The secretary jumped up from what she was doing. She was terrified of Mrs. Ammons, too. I don't know, the secretary said. He's in some other part of the building. Well, you call him down here right now. You, right now. The secretary hopped to the intercom and called for the vice principal. Mrs. Ammons held onto my arm, pinching it tighter, still muttering to herself and shaking her head. Everybody else was getting ready to be free, and I was going to be hung up in the vice principal's closet, expelled for life, sent to Siberia. Where is he? Mrs. Ammons asked. He's coming, he's coming, the secretary said. I looked down the hall, and I saw Mr. Oliver coming from the primary wing, trundling down the hall. Oh, I'm going to die. Mrs. Ammons had seen him, too, and she turned me around to face him. I saw the serious look on Mr. Oliver's face. He came closer and closer, and then, when he was about 20 feet away... It happened. 
The bell rang. The last long, long bell of school rang, and summer had begun. The doors of the classrooms were flung open. Hundreds, thousands of children free poured into the hall, out the main door, by the office, onto the pavement, headed to the buses, their arms waving, their voices chanting, raised in joy, papers being scattered everywhere. And I felt it too, like a great surge of joy and life and hope calling to something deep inside of me. I felt myself pulled to I looked up at Mrs. Ammons. She looked at me, and I saw something in her eyes. I couldn't quite make out what it was. Some doubt, some hesitation, some question. I felt her grip loosen for a moment. And I ran, like the wind. Or maybe I was just pulled, pulled by the mass of humanity that was pouring out of the door, out the door, down the walk, up the steps of the bus, all the way to the back of the bus. Other fourth graders from my class came on the bus and saw me. What happened, they asked. I got away, I said. They cheered and yelled. We looked out the window for Mr. Oliver or Mrs. Ammons or the whole police force to bust out of the school and get me. But the bus doors closed. The bus shifted into gear, up the driveway, onto the street. I was free, free at last, free at last, great God Almighty, free at last. I had never felt so free before. I've never felt so free again. I got home and came in the house, carefully. How was school, my mom asked. Fine, I said. Good, she said. Phew, I thought. She hadn't heard. I waited for a call from the school, but it didn't come. In the neighborhood, I was a hero. I had escaped from Mrs. Ammons, the only one to ever do so. And I took all the praise but I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure if I had gotten away or she had let me go because I remembered that look in her eyes and I wondered what it meant. I found out. Somewhere halfway through the summer, on the way home from the pool at the Y, I talked my mom into stopping and letting me get an ice cream cone. As I stood in line there in the hot sun, the line was four or five people deep, with a big guy in front of me, I heard a familiar voice at the window ordering, I like a small vanilla cone. It was she. I leaned over and looked around the guy in front of me. There she was, Mrs. Ammons, outside of school. She was wearing a white camp shirt and salmon-colored Bermuda shorts she would never have worn in school. She took the cone and turned to walk back down the line. I stood behind the guy in front of me, hoping she wouldn't notice. But she did. She stopped in front of me and looked at me with those steely eyes. Hello, William, she said. Hi, Mrs. Ammons. Are you having a good summer? Uh-huh. And then she licked her cone, looked at me evenly and said, I know you were sick of me. But, William, not as sick as I was of you. So, when you say goodbye to your teachers at the end of the school year and wonder how they're going to do without you, 
Don't worry about a thing. They're going to be just fine. <laughs> Mrs. Ammons and the Boys Room, a favorite tale from a favorite teller. Bill Harley is uh, active online during these interesting times. You can see and enjoy live storytelling performances that Bill will bring right into your living room. Visit BillHarley.com to find out what Bill's up to these days. We are going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back with stories from Mary Hamilton and Linda Goodman and Bill Lepp. There's a lot coming up this hour, and we're going to make room for an entry in the Radio Family Journal and a conversation with a friend as well. You won't want to miss any of it. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's great to have you back with us on today's episode of The Appleseed. Before the break, you heard a favorite story from Bill Harley, Mrs. Ammons and the Boys' Room, it was called. Perhaps it brought to mind elementary school hijinks for you or the memory of favorite uh, elementary school companions or teachers. It's very likely that a lot of those stories are worth sharing with the people that you love. In just a little bit, we're going to hear from Linda Goodman a story called What Do You Put in a Homentown? a pastry uh, that usually celebrates Purim, the celebration of the saving of the Jews from the wicked Haman. You can read about it in the biblical story of Esther. In any case, Linda Goodman learns to make homentaschen from her mom. And thinking about that story that you're going to hear in a bit reminds me of some of the things that you learn from the people who have gone before you. This is an entry in the Radio Family Journal. Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it. On the Appleseed. The year I turned six, my grandmother came for a summer visit. She was very old and lived far away. She was frail enough that she needed a lot of help. Help that she got from my patient and steadfast grandfather. So they didn't visit often, and as such, a visit from her was just a little bit like a holiday. Well, she was with us that year for an actual holiday, my birthday. And on that day, I came down the wooden stairs that ran up to my bedroom, and along with the sounds of my mom and my grandmother making a birthday breakfast, there was another little sound, a sound I didn't recognize. It was a sort of, oh, a fluttering sound against a little metallic ringing like you might get from a moth fluttering its wings inside the housing of a desk lamp. But this was no moth. I followed the sound into the living room, and I let out a little birthday gasp. On top of the piano sat a birdcage, and in the birdcage was a pretty little white parakeet, a birthday gift from my grandparents. I named the bird Percy. And after breakfast, my grandmother gave me a tour of Percy's house. Percy's house had a cuttlebone attached to the cage with a little metal bracket. And I thought cuttlebone was just a made-up name for something someone made for birds in a factory. And I was amazed when my grandmother taught me that the cuttlebone was actually the internal skeleton of the cuttlefish, and that Percy would chew on it and rub his beak against it to keep his beak in shape and to get a little extra calcium. My grandmother taught me how to remove the bracket that held the cuttlebone to the bars of the cage so I could replace it when I needed to. 
In Percy's house, there was a little plastic container made to hold water. It had a little plastic bit that would lock between the bars of the cage and a little trough built into it where Percy could drink. There was another plastic container, pretty much just like the water container, but this one was for holding the seed that Percy would eat. My grandmother showed me in the cupboard where the bag of seed was kept and helped me pour the seed into the container. And she showed me how to click it into place right where it was easy for Percy to get at. In Percy's house, the floor was covered with newspaper. My grandmother taught me how to remove the newspaper when it needed to be thrown away. And she taught me how to get another piece of newspaper and how to set the bottom of the cage down on the newspaper. She taught me how to use a pencil to trace around the bottom of the cage on the newspaper to make a perfect circle, exactly the right size for the bottom of the cage. In Percy's house, there was a slotted stick that served as a perch. My grandmother wanted me to learn how to put my finger right under Percy's breast as he stood on the perch. She wanted me to see how Percy would climb onto my finger, and I could give him a little ride. I never got good at that. The first time I tried, Percy flapped his wings and nipped at my finger, and I pulled my hand away, and Percy got out of the cage. My grandma had scooped him up. I had watched Percy nip at my grandmother's hand with his sharp little beak. My grandma didn't so much as wince, but it looked to me like it would hurt like crazy. So as things unfolded, rather than simply putting my finger under Percy and lifting him up, I poked one of my grandmother's knitting needles through the bars of the cage, using it to coax Percy along the perch and toward my silently waiting finger. I'm sure Percy loved that, being marched along the perch at needle point. I loved that bird. I drew pictures of him in school. I was just learning to write then, and I tried to write Percy on a piece of paper, and it came out all weird. To this day, when my dad refers to that bird, he calls him Plifretany, P-L-F-R-E-T-N-Y. That was my six-year-old spelling of Percy. Percy was my first pet, and also the first experience I had with the passing away of something I loved. We came into the living room one morning to find Percy still and silent. I cried in my dad's arms quietly and for a long time. The morning of Percy's passing was the only time my parents ever let me miss a morning of school. There was grieving to be done. I think I'll never know just how important it had been, how foundational for me, to pay close attention to the knowledge of my elders, to learn to take care of an animal that needed me, to perform that function more or less with steadfastness, and then, with all that love built up from all that care inside me, to lose and grieve the friend I loved. I would watch my grandmother wane over the years after she helped me learn to care for that bird. I would watch my grandfather care for her more steadfastly than I had ever cared for Percy, and I would grieve her when she finally left us. And what a blessing it was that she herself helped prepare me for such things with the gift of a bird on my birthday, the year I turned six. The Radio Family Journal of Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family, right when you need it, on the Appleseed. 
Thanks for joining me for that entry in the Radio Family Journal. That memory came to me as we were preparing today's Hour of the Appleseed and hearing a story by Linda Goodman about how she learned to make homentachen from her mother. You're going to hear that story in just a little bit. But first, how about a conversation with a friend? Great stories come into our lives in so many ways, through passing them on, telling to telling, through the things that we see on screen or the things we read in great books or the things we experience in terrific songs. And of course, some of the most important stories, some of the most memorable stories in our lives come to us through interactions with the great food of our family. And here to talk with me about food stories a little bit is our producer, Jeff Simpson. Jeff, it's great to have you with me. Great to be here. Surprise, surprise, you're talking food, and look who's here. (laughs) Ain't it the way? Ain't it the way? (laughs) Well, you've got a favorite food that you want to talk a little bit about. My mouth is already watering, i got to say. I don't want to tell you what it is right away because I want to take a little bit of time getting there. I want you to earn this, Sam. (laughs) And uh, in my family growing up, Thanksgiving was such a magical time. Oh, yeah. You know, where anything could happen, even though we did the same exact thing every year, right? (laughs) My dad would come pick us up early from school, you know, and there's that sense of pride. Oh, I get to get out before all my peers. (laughs) (laughs) And he would pack our big Dodge van in a way that all the suitcases would be on the bottom. Then he would pad it with pillows and blankets. Back in the day, you know, when you didn't have to worry as much about safety and without being judged too harshly, you could just lay down for the entire trip. That's right. So we would take the four-hour drive from Anaheim, California to Fresno. And on the way, we would we would pull out the summer sausage and Triscuit crackers and pop open the soda cans while we're listening to the coasters with songs like Charlie Brown and Love Potion Number no. 9 <laughs> just on the tape deck. I have such fond memories of that. What I did not love – and, you know, this is a source of much laughter on the way to grandmother's house – was the smell of the manure that we would inevitably come across on the way to Fresno. Oh, as you pass the... Yeah. Right. <laughs> but the greatest juxtaposition of that, Sam, is when you would get to grandma's house, you would open that front door, and the first thing that you could smell was you just knew on her stove there was this big pot of chicken noodle soup that was heating up and just waiting for you to (laughs) indulge in, right? And you could smell all the ingredients, the chicken, the salt in the broth. And when you just slurped into that first bite, it went down so smoothly. And you got to be careful not to eat it too hot because then you can't taste anything for the rest of Thanksgiving. That's right. Yeah, you take one bite of soup that's too hot and it ruins the rest of the bowl. Right. But the journey wasn't even over there because you knew that beyond the kitchen in the laundry room, there were two – uh, freshly baked pumpkin pies that oh, were just man. cooling, and you. But you did have to wait for those, unfortunately, <laughs> until Thanksgiving. And then, if you went out that back door, you knew that Grandma's big orange tree was just sitting there with these big giant oranges ready for you to dig into. And uh, man, when I think of Thanksgiving at Grandma's house, I think about all. The great mouthwatering food that just made it so much of an experience and such a magical experience, really. It's so interesting. You know, one of the things that you said that it's a, that it's a time that promises all kinds of magic 
Even though the same thing happens every time, right? right? Anything <laughs> could happen, but it'll be the same things. But you love that. You, you love, love those having things. those routines as a kid. Yeah, yeah. And 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 what a lovely comment on your grandmother that she's paying attention to when you left the house. She's paying attention to how long it takes you to get there, so that by the time you get there, she's got the pot of soup ready to oh, go. Oh, yeah, that's marvelous. Yeah. Is there a particular dish? Whether from your grandma or in in your home, that is just kind of the staple holiday dish that every time you'd get together, you just couldn't wait to get into. <laughs> well, my 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 mother's parents mm-hmm. uh, made a lot of Greek food. Yeah, right. And so I remember the 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 equivalent of what you're talking about is showing up at grandma's house to the smell of freshly baking baklava. Oh, and uh, yeah, and and not everybody likes baklava, but I love it, and uh, <laughs> and and I I of course it's it's a part of my life from the time I was a little child. But there's something that you said about walking into your grandmother's house and even. The, that, the familiar smell of that chicken soup, you know. I mean, there are places that I've, you know, doors that I've walked into and there's a particular smell in that room that's such a potent trigger for a memory, you know. I know that if I walked into a room that smelled like my grandma's house did, I would I would recognize that smell even though my grandmother moved from that house when I was a teenager, you know, yeah. and it would put me right back at her at her house. And you know, other than food, you know I love talking about movies too and it really reminds me of that scene in at the end of Ratatouille <laughs> when that very stiff uh you know Upper nose, I don't know what you would call him, this, this food critic that, <laughs> yeah. you know, there was nothing that you could do right for this food critic. And yet when this very simple peasant, quote, peasant dish was presented to him, he took one bite of it and you could see the camera zooming in onto his brain and him reliving his childhood and his mother putting this plate of ratatouille in front of him. And he gets emotional That's about right. it and then writes That's this right. this this uh, this glowing review of this restaurant from of this plate that is presented to him by a rat. That, pheno- <laughs> that phenomenon is so well captured that that yes. phenomenon of of being presented with a, something to eat that is so like what you remember eating as a as a child that it takes you right back there. Oh, it, chicken it, soup. It's so formative for so many people. And it's. It, you you taste certain foods and all of a sudden you're home. <laughs> well, what a wonderful thing to spend just a moment, if only in memory, with Jeff's grandma's chicken soup. After a long drive, what a pleasure to have you with us, Jeff. Great to be here. Great stories come into our lives in so many ways, and food stories are among our favorites. It's always a pleasure to chat with Jeff. Jeff, of course, is the producer of The Appleseed. Going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back with a story called What Do You Put in a Homentachen? A story from Linda Goodman. You won't want to miss it. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. 
It's great to have you back with us on today's episode of The Appleseed. Before the break, you heard an entry in the Radio Family Journal, and that memory of learning from someone who'd gone before me uh, came to my mind when I heard this story from Linda Goodman, a story called What Do You Put in a Chomentachen? A Chomentachen is a pastry that celebrates Purim. And uh, as Linda Goodman begins this story, she's learning to make Chomentachen from her mother. And uh, the story goes on to be a lot more lighthearted, perhaps, than the story about Percy the parakeet, but we're happy to bring it to you. Here's Linda Goodman with What Do You Put in a Chomentachen? Here on The Appleseed. When I was a little girl, I used to love making Chomentachen with my mom for Purim. She would take out a big mixing bowl and combine two-thirds cup of butter, a half a cup of sugar, an egg, two cups of flour, three tablespoons of water, and a little vanilla. Then she would roll out the sweet, buttery dough onto the kitchen table. I could smell the hot, bubbling pan of poppy seeds on the stove, the filling for the homentashen. She called the poppy seeds mon. That's the word in Yiddish. You don't want to put anything but mon into a homentashen, she would say, and certainly not prunes. Only homentaschen filled with mon are worth eating. My mom's homentaschen were delicious. It's true, the best thing to put in a homentaschen is mon. And so I grew up believing that homentaschen could only taste good if they were filled with mon. I grew and I grew and I grew until I graduated from high school and I went on to college. During my first Purim at the university, I decided to make homentaschen with my friends. Where do we buy poppy seeds? I asked them. I had never actually bought them myself. Poppy seeds? My friend said. What do you need poppy seeds for? To put inside the homentaschen, I answered. No, 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 you don't put poppy seeds in the homentaschen. They get stuck in your teeth. It's disgusting. Homentaschen should be filled with prunes, sweet, purplish prunes. I gasped, <gasps> but I really wanted to fit in with my friends. And so, that year, I made homentaschen filled with prunes. I agreed with my friends. They tasted delicious. And it's true. The best thing to put in a homentaschen is prunes. Poppy seeds do get stuck in your teeth. And prunes do not. I grew and I grew and I grew, and then I went to live in Israel for a while. My first Purim in Israel, I was sitting with a group of my new friends, and we were talking about making homentaschen for Purim. I asked, Where do you buy prunes to fill the homentaschen? Prunes? said my Israeli friends. Yichse, not prunes. In Israel, we fill ozne haman, or as you say, homentaschen, with mishbish, apricots. That's what you put in a homentaschen. And so, I went to the market, bought fresh apricots, chopped them up, boiled them with sugar, and put them into the homentaschen. And they tasted delicious. It's true, I thought. The best thing to put in a homentaschen is apricots, mishmish. Well, I grew and I grew and I grew and I moved to Los Angeles, got married and had kids of my own. One day, I went to a mommy and me class and we were making homentaschen for Purim. I said to the teacher, I'm a little confused. 
I don't know what to put in the homentaschen. Should I put mohn or prunes or mishmish? What do you think? Poppy seeds? Prunes? Apricots? No, 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 she said. Kids only like chocolate chips. That's what you put in a homentaschen. Chocolate chips. So I made homentaschen with chocolate chips inside, and they tasted delicious. It's true, I thought. The best thing to put in a homentaschen is. Wait, I'm confused. So I ask. <laughs> a little story and song called "What Do You Put in a Homentaschen." Up next, a story about how Coyote gets in trouble with his tail. This is a story from Mary Hamilton. Happy to bring it to you here on the Appleseed. Coyote was walking along. He was walking and walking and walking when suddenly, two dogs started to chase Coyote. Well, Coyote began to run. Coyote ran and Coyote ran and Coyote ran and Coyote looked back at those dogs and he said, "Hmm, I know those dogs. Those dogs are bigger than I am, but those dogs have chased me before. I've outrun those dogs before. I'll outrun those dogs again today." And Coyote ran, and Coyote ran, and Coyote ran. And after a while, Coyote looked back at those dogs, and he said, "Uh huh. Just look at those dogs. Their tongues are hanging out. Those dogs are getting tired. This is just about the time that I usually outrun those dogs." When all of a sudden, two other dogs jumped up in front of Coyote, and they began to chase Coyote back to where that chase had begun. And back at the beginning, there were two more dogs waiting, and those dogs began to chase Coyote. Back and forth and back and forth, those dogs chased Coyote. Well, Coyote ran and Coyote ran and Coyote ran, and Coyote said, "Oh, 
I gotta find a place to hide. I gotta get away from these dogs. Well, I always thought these dogs were too stupid for plans, but these dogs, these dogs had a plan today. These dogs were ready for me. I gotta hide, I gotta hide. And Coyote looked and looked, and up alongside a mountain, Coyote saw what looked like the entrance to a cave. And Coyote said, yeah, that's where I'll go. I'll go right up there. Well, that cave, it looks like a cave. It looks just big enough for me, and it looks too little for those dogs. And Coyote ran, and Coyote ran, and when he was almost to that cave, well, those dogs were so close to Coyote that they bit a couple of hairs right out of the end of his tail. Coyote scooted right inside that cave, and sure enough, the entrance to that cave was just big enough for Coyote, and it was too little for those dogs. Well, Coyote got inside that cave, and there was some fresh water in that cave, and Coyote drank that water, mmm, and then Coyote rested. Ah. And then Coyote began to think about how he had gotten away from those dogs. <laughs> and Coyote, well, Coyote felt so good about getting away from those dogs that he felt like bragging about it. But there was no one in that cave to brag to. So Coyote decided to have a conversation with himself. <laughs> He started with his eyes. He said, eyes, eyes, are you here? And Coyote's eyes said, oh, yes, Coyote, we're here. And Coyote said, eyes, eyes, tell me, what did you do to help me get away from those dogs? And Coyote's eyes said, Coyote, what did we do to help you get away from those dogs? Well, we looked and we looked and we looked. We're the ones who found this cave for you, Coyote. That's what we did to help you get away from those dogs. And Coyote he said, oh, eyes, good job. Then Coyote said, ears, ears, are you here? And Coyote's ears said, oh, yes, Coyote, we're here. And Coyote said, ears, ears, tell me, what did you do to help me get away from those dogs? And Coyote's ears said, Coyote, what did we do to help you get away from those dogs? Well, we listened and we listened and we listened. We let you know how close those dogs were to you, Coyote. That's what we did to help you get away from those dogs. And Coyote said, oh, ears, good job. And then Coyote said, mouth, mouth, are you here? And Coyote's mouth said, well, of course I'm here, Coyote. Who do you think's talking for you? And Coyote said, all right, mouth, mouth, tell me, what did you do to help me get away from those dogs? And Coyote's mouth said, Coyote. What did I do to help you get away from those dogs? Well, when you were running, I kept myself open so you could take air in and you could breathe it out. <sighs> yes, that's what I did to help you get away from those dogs. And Coyote said, oh, mouth, good job. And then Coyote said, feet feet. Are you here? And Coyote's feet said, well, of course we're here, Coyote. And Coyote said, well, feet, tell me, what did you do to help me get away from those dogs? And Coyote's feet said, Coyote, what did we do to help you get away from those dogs? Well, we ran and we ran and we ran. And no matter how tired we got, we never stopped running. That's what we did to help you get away from those dogs. And Coyote said, oh, feet, good job. And then Coyote just sat there, feeling so good about how his body had helped him get away from those dogs. And then Coyote heard a voice, 
a voice that went, <clears throat> Coyote. And Coyote looked behind him. It was his tail. Coyote decided to ignore it. But again he heard, <clears throat> Coyote. So Coyote said, All right, tail, what is it? And Coyote's tail said, Well, Coyote, you forgot to ask me what I did to help you get away from those dogs. And Coyote said, All right, tail. I suppose everyone else talks. You think you have to talk too. All right, Tail. Come on. Tell us what did you do to help me get away from those dogs? As if you could do anything to help me get away from dogs. I know one thing, Tail. You almost got me caught. But go ahead. Let's hear your story. Tell us what did you do to help me get away from those dogs? Well, Coyote's tail did not much like the way Coyote was talking. So Coyote's tail said, Coyote, what did I do to help you get away from those dogs? I said, come on, dogs, come on, come get this coyote, come get this coyote. And Coyote said, tail, you did what? And Coyote's tail said, well, you heard me, Coyote. I said, come on, dogs, come on, come get this coyote. He's right over here, dogs, you can do it. Run a little faster, dogs, come on, come on, come get this coyote, come get this coyote. And Coyote said, tail, if you did that, then you don't deserve to be safe inside this cave with the rest of us. Now get out. And Coyote began pushing his tail right outside that cave. Well, now, those dogs had been sitting outside that cave, and those dogs had heard that whole conversation, and those dogs could hardly believe what was happening. But sure enough, Coyote's tail came right outside that cave, and of course, all the rest of Coyote was attached. And those dogs, well, those dogs got Coyote that day. And if you want to find out what happened to Coyote on another day, well, you'll just have to find another Coyote tale. Mary Hamilton with Coyote's Tale here on The Apple Seed. We're going to wrap up today with a story from Bill Lepp. In this story, young Bill and his pals get the idea that anything can stretch. And we should tell you that this piece is actually just a fragment, an excerpt from a long story of Bill's called Vampire Santa. The whole thing's worth listening to. And, of course, you can find more of Bill's work at lepstorytelling.com. Here's Anything Can Stretch on the Appleseed. Things move on. And one day I said to Skeeter, sometimes I had the idea, I said to Skeeter one time, I said, Skeeter, I think anything will stretch. And when you're a kid, you know, an idea is really the bread and butter of childhood. If you can get a good idea, you're set for the rest of the day. And when you get a really juicy idea like anything can stretch, you want to have that idea 
as early in the day as possible. Because when you get the idea anything can stretch, that sets off a series of experiments that must be conducted for, you know, possible Nobel contention. So you want to get that idea as early in the day as possible because you don't want to lay at night all night thinking. You know, you get the the idea at 6 o'clock at night, you're going to lay in bed awake all night thinking someone else is going to think of this before I get up again and it's going to be ruined. So I said to Skeeter early one summer morning, I said, Skeeter, anything can stretch. And he thought about it for a minute. He goes, yes, that's true, but... He said there's certain parameters. He said, for example, I bet you could stretch a frog a lot further than you could stretch a Coke bottle. It sounds horrible, but it's true, and it was just theory. We hadn't practiced it yet. So we decided, yeah, yeah. What we decided what we needed was a stretching machine. And so it occurred to me that I owned half a stretching machine, And Skeeter owned half a stretching machine, and his was a Schwinn, and mine was a Huffy. And what we did was we tied a rope to my seat, and we tied a rope to his seat, and then whatever we were going to stretch, this was very scientific, we would get a finely tuned measuring instrument, you know, like a yardstick. And then whatever we were going to stretch, we'd lay that down on the yardstick and measure it before stretching it for scientific control. So say we took a gym sock and we'd lay it down and we'd be like 12 inches and five little lines. That's what we'd write down. Then we'd tie one end, you know, one end of that sock to each of our, each side of the stretching machine and, and stretch as far as we could and then we'd measure it again. And now it'd be, you know, 19 inches and six little lines. And so then we would know how far we stretched. We kept a record of this. So, you know, it was like you know, garden hose, four inches, um, you know, sister's curling iron, cord stretched right out of it. <laughs> sister's hair dryer, same result. Um, cat, uh, didn't stretch far, but stretched loud. So, I mean, it's science. Someone had to know, right? Someone had to do the first autopsy. Sure, people at Storytelling Fest said, ew, you did an autopsy, you know, back then with Copernicus when he was on the storytelling circuit. But anyway, um, I don't think it was Copernicus, was it? Where's my nine-year-old son who can tell? Aristotle. It's not Aristotle. Anyway, it doesn't really matter. Um, But then, then Skeeter hit on this interesting idea. Well, first then we thought, you know, maybe a cinder block could stretch. And we figured out that our stretching machines weren't powerful enough And then we realized that each of our father owned half of a stretching machine. And my dad's was a Buick, and uh, Skeeter's dad's was a Ford. And so we took that uh, cinder block and we tied it to the bumpers, and we stretched the bumpers right off of both cars. And that ended our stretching experiments, and again, probably cost us the Nobel Prize. But my dad... uh, My dad was so fed up, he showed us how to, uh, he wanted us, you know, he knew we were going to keep stretching stuff, so he gave us a bicycle inner tube, and we would stretch that between two stumps or two fence posts, and then stretch it back as far as you could, and it was the world's greatest slingshot. You could send, you could send a water balloon about 900 miles, it was wonderful. But then one day, you know, we were still sort of in the whole stretching thing, and Skeeter said, I bet Jell-O could stretch. Yeah, I hear you. So we tried all sorts of different jello stretching mechanisms, and we found the straw. You know, you could suck it pretty far up the straw. You could stretch it that far. And then one day the matches and the stretching sort of collided when Skeeter said, I bet you could strike a match on jello. Because 
Well, you know, we read strike anywhere matches, so we had to test that too. Like, we found out you can't strike them underwater, you know, no matter what. It's, it's a lie. They're not strike anywhere. But we thought, can we strike them on jello? And Skeeter said it's simple. He said, what you have to understand is before the jello, you know, before you mix it up, it's in that crystalline form. And those crystals are sharp. He said, sure, you could strike it on that. But after you mix it up, then, you know, jello basically consists of jello molecules combined with mo- water molecules. And the water molecules are what smooth it out. So if you could stretch the jello, far enough, the jello molecules would stick up out of the water molecules. You could drag the match along that and you could light the match on the protruding jello molecules. Well, I mean, it makes sense to us, right? So we tried it and it didn't work. <laughs> Anything can stretch. Just an excerpt from a much longer story called Vampire Santa. Find more of Bill Lepp's work at lepstorytelling.com. It's been a pleasure for us to be with you today to bring you stories from Bill Harley, Bill Lepp, Mary Hamilton, Linda Goodman. It's been such a pleasure to have you with us. We hope you had a good time. We can't wait to share another hour of the Apple Seed with you. We hope you'll join us. And, of course, you can find us online at byuradio.org slash Appleseed. There's an archive there where you can find storytellers that are already favorites and tellers that will become favorites as you listen to them. This hour was written by Alyssa Mingorance. Our producer is Jeff Simpson. Our audio engineer is Carly Robison. I'm Sam Payne. Can't wait to be with you again on The Appleseed. Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by The Appleseed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time.